Hello and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. Dare to build this alternative single future where, you know, what will happen if you don't meet somebody and or you just have love affairs and what kind of beautiful, happy life could you build and have that in your head because that is an escape shoot from any toxic relationship that you may find yourself in. In this episode, I am joined by the writer Catherine Gray, author of the book series The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober and The Unexpected Joy of Being Single. And if I may say so myself, there are some pearls of wisdom in this episode, so listen closely. We talk about sobriety, sober dating and all that entails, self-partnership, love addiction and dealing with breakups. A lot of you message me about relationships and being single, expressing some fear around it. Now, especially going through one Saturn return, when you're approaching 30, there is a lot of pressure in society and relationships are just, they're complicated. And for all the advancements we've made, we are still quite archaic in this way of thinking that a woman's worth is measured by whether or not she's been chosen by a man. And Catherine looks at this very differently. And in this episode, we explore what self-partnership looks like and what that means. Now, I know that this isn't for everyone, and I don't think you have to resign yourself to it forever. I just think it's useful to question why you feel a certain way. You know, is it what you really want? Or is it what society is telling you? Is it what your parents are telling you? Or what your friends are doing? It's just important to be curious about these sorts of things, because you know, I think we need to take the pressure off ourselves a little bit. And I hope this episode will help in doing so. And I just wanted to add on a personal note, in the spirit of honesty that I discuss in this episode, that when you love yourself and like yourself, that rejection doesn't hurt as much. And I have to say that, ironically, just after I recorded this episode, and I mean like, Straight after, I started dating someone and experienced what felt like a huge rejection, actually. And I've said in my solo episode that time is not necessarily a measure of the pain we feel in in relationship. And this one really floored me. So I thought I would just add that, that by no means am I immune to heartbreak after all. I am a mere mortal. And I just wanted to say that because when I listened back, I thought... If only you knew. So, before we get into this episode, here is our astrological guide for the season, Nora. And you can find her on Instagram at Stars Incline if you want reading. Between the ages of 24 and 27, Venus, the love planet, matures. And at this time, we really start to learn what our real love needs are, what our love language is, what we want in a relationship. And we start to explore the ideas of self-love and also giving ourselves the worth that we deserve. So it's really the idea of like attracts like. If you're valuing yourself, if you are giving yourself the worth you deserve, you'll attract somebody who'll be doing the same thing. So. The time before Saturn return is preparing you for that, but the progress lunar return is kind of initiating you into emotional maturity. And usually by the time that you're over the Saturn return or by the end of it, you'll really be mastering that idea of self-partnership and 
by the time that you're in your 30s, hopefully you'll be attracting healthy dynamics. And you won't really be looking for relationships as much if they're not fulfilling all of your love needs. So you've written these incredible books that have sort of changed people's lives about singleton and sobriety. Are you single at the moment, firstly? Yes, I'm single. You are. Um, and I'm 40. And would you believe I have never been happier really? in my life? You got sober at... 33. 33. Mm-hmm. So that, would you say that that, like, through your late 20s to early 30s, that it was brewing for a while that this was something that you needed to address? Oh, yeah, definitely. So 27, 28 was when I started trying to reduce my drinking mm-hmm. because I was aware that... Problematic. I, yeah, I had a lovely life. I was working at Glamour magazine. I had a beautiful um, flat with my best friend in Ballum and a lovely boyfriend. And I could tell that I was going to screw it all up if I continued drinking the way I was drinking. My friends even nicknamed me Booze Hag. You don't want that to be your nickname. <laughs> you don't want that as a nickname, like no. It's quite endearing in your early 20s, perhaps you can get away with it. But then, like, I think something shifts. Yeah. And obviously this is what the whole podcast is about, is about that shift during your Saturn returns in your late 20s where you're just like, this is so unbecoming now. Yeah. I need to start, you know. And also, I could tell that my workmates, who had been very warm to me at the beginning, were really starting to freeze over. My... <laughs> My nickname at work was Sick Note. <laughs> Again, a nickname you don't want. Booze Hag and Sick Note. Not good nicknames. So I really started trying to get a handle on it and just completely failed. So then when I was 30, my boyfriend at the time, who was like my longest relationship to date, we were together for three years and we were definitely planning to get married and do the whole thing. Um, just dumped me because of my unreasonable behaviour and my drinking and me just being a twat. And I just went off the rails and stopped even trying to control my drinking. So that led me to 33 when I quit. But also the love addiction thing was like a second sobriety for me. So the love addiction that you talk about, it was that something that you were aware of at the time or was that after going sober you suddenly were like, oh, I have love addiction? It was definitely after going sober that I realised it. I didn't... I actually thought my behaviour was quite normal before Mm. going sober. But I think when you quit drinking, you wake up to all sorts of behaviours. Like, I didn't know that I was socially anxious Mm. until I quit drinking because I had stuffed it down for so long. Um, And I had a relationship in early sobriety, Mm -hmm. very early sobriety, and it only lasted six, seven months, something like that. And when it ended, I was absolutely crushed, even though I didn't love him. Wow. And I was like, why am I so devastated? And so I really deep dove into that and unpicked it and dismantled it. And it was because I was 33 and I really felt like I should be getting married and having kids at that age. So you're putting that pressure on yourself. Yeah, and because I wasn't, I felt like such a failure as a human being. Mm-hmm. Not It wasn't about him. It mm-hmm. wasn't about that breakup. It was about I felt like as a single person I'd failed and I was be- I was a loser because I 
wasn't getting married. Isn't that so sad, though, that we think like that, that we've been conditioned to think like that? I know. Because it sounds like it was less about him and the relationship, but that was a sort of plaster for something that was bubbling underneath. And then when that was removed, it sort of erupted. Yeah, Like a feeling that you probably had that you were keeping at bay with that relationship. Yeah, and I then realised, I looked back over my adulthood, and from the ages of 18 to 33... I had only been single for a grand total of six months. Whoa. I know. I mean, my friends... (laughs) That's a lot of dating. (laughs) That's a lot of dating. That's a lot of boyfriends. Because as soon as I broke up with somebody, I would be on the hunt for someone else. And those six months were basically spent interviewing potential boyfriends. (laughs) Hunting. Like, Was there actually, like, no moment in between? It was like, break up, okay, on to the next. Yeah, pretty much, within a few weeks. And my friends begged me to take time off. They Mm. were like, you need to reset and recalibrate what you want and not just hurtle into the next relationship. But there was always someone there waiting. And I was probably subconscious, well, I was queuing them up as well. I was a major flirt. Yeah. And And you you said as well that, with the drinking that you there was infidelity yes there was I was pretty much not faithful to anyone when I was drinking and since I quit drinking almost seven years I have not cheated once so I mean for me I thought I was a cheater I thought there was something wrong with me deep down like some bone deep thing where I couldn't be faithful actually it was just the drinking and I felt so guilty about it as well my cheating was never premeditated it was always go out, get drunk, accidentally fall on a man that's not my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) But there was also probably quite dark moments that where Mm. I was in blackout and I don't actually remember what happened and then waking up in a strange bed. Did you acknowledge those at the time or not really? I was so ashamed of the fact that I couldn't remember what happened that I brazened it out. Just sort of erased it from your mind. Pretended I remembered what happened because I couldn't confront the fact that I was getting blackout drunk so regularly. The blackout thing is, um, I used to experience that as well. Yeah. Where like something would switch and I'd just, I'd be, you know, animated, walking, talking, doing stuff. Yeah. But I, it wasn't really me. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that people don't understand about blackouts. You can be, appear like a functioning person in a nightclub. Um, who can do things like order drinks and um, talk to people, but you're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And the most primal part of your brain is in charge when you're in a blackout, which is why you do mad shit. Like, I don't know, get aggressive with people or cheat or eat fried chicken (laughs) when you wouldn't normally. So it it felt like being two people. Yeah, I get Um, that. Yeah. And to go back to the relationship thing, okay, so if we take that back, because most of this stuff does stem from childhood and observing relationship within our family dynamics and stuff, would you say that that played a big part in the way that you approach relationships in life? Yes. I mean, I saw a lot of broken relationships through my childhood, but it was also hammered home to me that the most important thing I was to do as a girl and then a woman was to get married. That was... From both parents? Yeah. It really was from both parents. And when I turned 33 and I was single, one of the reasons I was so devastated was because my dad started calling me a spinster. That really upset me. And he wasn't kidding. And he said that he'd... um, renamed my wedding fund, the egg freezing fund. Yeah, that really upset me as well. But it's just, I mean, that lack of sensitivity... 
can be really damaging. Yeah, I think it can be. And it's but it's also something that kids learn from a very, very young age. Like my niece started asking me when she was four, why aren't you married, Auntie mm. Catherine? She Where doesn't she got think that, that from? independently. No. Like she's picked that up. That's been planted somewhere. And I think it a lot of it is from fairy tales. And movies and literature. Yeah, and it sticks. I remember reading in your book about young girls playing with like Barbies that can pee themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and you just wanted to like be on a dirt bike and yeah, everything. Yeah, on a BMX. I've yeah. never come across a Barbie that pees herself, but I would. Was that not what <laughs> Am I making that up? <laughs> That's hilarious. No, it was, just, it was just one of those, you know, those baby dolls. Um, <laughs> no, that was just us in our 20s. <laughs> yeah, that was just That was boot dolls. Just night out. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I mean, as a kid, I, I was given dolls and my brother was given bikes and robots and whatever, and I just wanted to play with his toys and climb trees. And I guess that starts off that messaging of, like, this is your purpose, you know, to have, yeah. to have children, to create a home. Yeah, and when you look at the words that are used for men and women in terms of singleness, it's so stark, the difference. Women are called, you know, spinsters. Men are, Men are called bachelors. Bachelors is a good term. It's a, oh, new, yeah. it's a neutral or positive term. And, you know, we're crying at home with our cats knitting fair isle sweaters while they're off having a whirl of a time, even until they're 40. Just they're getting not... better and better and yeah, better, just, like a fine wine. Like a fine wine. <laughs> yeah. my, my dad once told me that men appreciate like houses as in they gain value whereas women depreciate like cars <gasps> as in they peak at 25 and then that's it all the way down your dad told you that yeah okay so your dad seems to have quite a lot to answer for i think i have a bit of an issue with your dad yeah. he's actually um he's gone now he died at oh, a few years no Absolutely. don't worry don't, don't, don't worry don't worry <laughs> that wasn't to make you feel bad but actually, even though his death was tragically, tragically sad and devastating, it did allow me to move past some of those damaging notions that he. Because did you feel like that? With. Yeah, that that pressure that you said when you uh, came out of that relationship at thirty three and you just crumbled was that sort of in the back of your mind of like, what's my dad gonna say? Yeah, and my wider family as well. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just him; it was coming from all sides. I don't know whether people even realise they're doing it. Like, mm. I was at a dinner party the other night and saying how happy I was being single at 40 and then somebody started, um, who I love dearly, just giving me completely unsolicited advice about how to Find secure someone. a relationship. And... But I also think it's so to do with the people you surround yourself with because yeah. I have groups of friends that are all sort of settled down and, and that's their thing and I'm perfectly happy for them that that's what they want to do. But then I also have other communities that aren't yeah and so I just make sure that I'm like not constantly in a situation where I feel like I'm being compared to people that would pressure me to do so yeah well that's great you need that balance you really do and interestingly at your point in life people will be getting married and having the kids and everything will seem quite happy and idealistic right now but from my point of life People are starting to get divorced and they're having really messy divorces. And it's made me question if I ever even want to get married. And mm. I really think now that maybe I don't because I've seen how complicated it is to get divorced. And I um, read it in your book as well that 
for you, it's always been such a catalyst for your work. Yeah. The sort of alchemy of a breakup was like rocket fuel for your career. Yeah. And kind of gave you this like new invigoration. And I felt like that for me as well. And it's always been the case. If I look back, I've had these relationships that have been very all-consuming and I sort of abandoned myself in the process. And then when in the demise, especially if the demise is bad, mm. I always use it as a sort of springboard to like get my shit together because otherwise I'm going to drown. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So like if our life is a pie chart, mm. I think our relationship segment takes up a huge amount in our minds and yeah. because we've been brought up that way that it like when it disappears you have this empty void whereas I've just been slowly just making it like a little bit smaller a little bit smaller so it's still a significant chunk yeah but the other things around it make me fulfilled so that when someone comes along if they're not right even if they're like good in a lot of ways I'm able to say I'm okay. Yeah. Like, I really, I don't need someone to just come and, like, fill that gap because it's not, it's not this void anymore. Yeah. But then I was speaking with a friend about it and I was saying how now I'm sort of thinking perhaps, you know, I quite like the idea of, of being single. Why do I have to have children? Why do I have to get married? I can paint whatever picture I want for how I want my life to look. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to have lovers around the world. <laughs> and she was like, I can imagine you doing that and that's great. But are you doing that because you've been hurt and it's like a form of self-protection on some deep subconscious level? And I was like, huh, it would be so deep that I don't even know about it. <laughs> but it's an interesting thought. Yeah. Know, where is the balance between sort of cultivating independence and actually building up a wall. Yeah, I think that's so interesting and it's so difficult to unplat what you actually want and what is a self-defensive. Oh, we'll sob that, I'll just, you know, go just and live forever. Yeah, and just have a have sailor in every port. <laughs> <laughs> a sailor in every port. I love it. I mean, it's quite aspirational if you ask me. <laughs> I like that idea. But it's, the way I approach it now is I do have and I, I, it's so strong in my mind I can see it a single future that I do not need anyone else to build mm -hmm. and it involves a farmhouse and lots of animals named after musical icons like Hendrix the horse and share the goose and Bross the duck, ducklings and like I could go on and on <laughs> animal farm basically <laughs> <laughs> exactly it. exactly and I don't need anyone else to create that I can do that because you know, I've got a good career now. And actually, I don't think I would have this career if I had married at 31, mm. which was what I was on track to do, and had kids. I, I don't actually think I would have had the time to build up all these books and, you know, yeah. do this. Relationships yeah. are really time-consuming. Oh, my God, yeah. There's compromise and... Yeah. Something's got to give. They mm. say that, you know, your friendships will either suffer or your career or your relationship, but mm. to manage all three perfectly is tough. Yeah. And I definitely think that because of the nature of who I am, and I think it might be similar to the way you used to function, was in this sort of like love addictive uh, mentality that when someone came along that I was into, it was literally like everything went to the bottom of the list oh, and God, they yeah. like took up the first 20 like, numbers. Yeah. Even if you'd only known them for three weeks, they were Even right at the top. three minutes. Like, honestly, <laughs> it doesn't take more than that. I'm like, I will not get <laughs> carried away. Da, 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 da. 
<laughs> oh, I mean, there's a reason why love addiction is often referred to as the second sobriety after the drinking thing. It's very common in AA to have a year off dating in order yeah. to sort of get yourself stable. Because that just becomes the next addiction if they don't. Yeah, I completely ignored that advice. Went out with somebody immediately. Was this the person that you were with at 33? Yes. Yeah. And then we broke up and then I was like, oh yeah, that advice was quite good advice actually. <laughs> so maybe... Would you say that you just poured the addiction to him then? Um, no, I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that was always my secondary addiction, mm -hmm. but I just wasn't aware of it until I quit my primary addiction, which was the drinking. And I think what happened was I started drinking in my teens in a way to get closer to guys because yeah. I was very anxious and nervous and, you know, at a party I would have been the wallflower and then I drank to turn myself into the Whoever you needed to be, starter. yeah. And it was, I was a hit. Guys loved me, so I had... And then you were like, this is a winning formula. Yeah, so obviously I just need to do this. Where's the vodka? I'm <laughs> wearing <laughs> makeup, bring me, bring me eyeliner. A bit of leather. <laughs> I mean, that is what, to, you know... An extent I think we all did growing up because alcohol is introduced primarily as a sort of social lubricant in those situations where women don't know how to talk to men men don't know how to talk to women yeah and it just enables you to do so I mean even now dating sober is such an interesting thing because that is I can barely remember first kiss in my life that wasn't after you know quite a lot to drink yeah I mean I I had no idea how to do it and that yeah. was terrifying. I felt so naked. Mm. And so, like, how how do people kiss? I, just, I don't know how I'm going to do that. And I think that stops people from continuing because mm. that is such a fearful place because it's also very vulnerable and exposing. And you are just you. Yeah. You know, sort of take it or leave it. And then, heaven forbid, if they leave it, you, it might crush you. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I think that if you are in a place where you like and accept yourself... It doesn't really hurt that much. No, it doesn't. And it comes And I back really to want to, like, push that point across to people because I think that they think rejection is just the thing to be avoided at all costs. But actually, it, like, it stings momentarily. But when you like yourself, it's like, well, that, literally, they're yeah, lost. they're lost. And I, I think it comes back to what you were saying, that amazing thing with the pie chart. It doesn't collapse into itself if the, mm. the bulk of it is not romantic relationships if you've got loads of other things going on which you tend to have that when you have high self-esteem so that it doesn't really matter if this date doesn't work out and I used to crush like a paper bag even if a guy I'd only known for seven hours ghosted me because I felt like that meant I was unworthy and not wanted because you on some level felt that about yourself yeah and now I mean it still hurts of course it does but as you say you just bounce back so much more quickly yeah you came up with an analogy that I really liked about sort of like the scaffolding that we have in place that keeps things up but actually can be counterproductive and it's almost like the architecture that we have formed in our lifetime isn't always built on steady foundations and our dependency and our self-worth relies on that external validation from like the male gaze and from someone messaging you back and wanting to see you again. Yeah. And there's that amazing poem by Dr. Zeus, The Waiting Place. And honestly, I felt like in my 20s and early 30s, I lived in the waiting place. I was always waiting 
for something, for someone to text me back or someone to want another date. Or if I was in a long-term relationship, I was waiting for, you know, him to want to move in with me or, or whatever. And I didn't necessarily even want that myself. I moved in with mm. two guys who actually, did I want to live with them or did I just want them to want to live with me? Mm. But you've just been so conditioned to think that way. Yeah. But isn't it the most empowering thing when you click that actually I can up-level on my own and continue to up-level constantly and then create the life for myself that I want mm. without relying on anyone else to do so. Yeah, and absolutely. And also you have so much time. I did a lot of digging around in uh, fertility studies. Everyone's told, and I think this is very common, that 35, you need to nail it before 35 because then, then there's, some, there's some sort of cliff drop yeah. where all your eggs... like Cliff is a word commonly used yeah. at 35. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And that's just not true. So when you look at recent studies, not these, I think it was 1800s French peasants, that's where they got the 35 thing. And basically in the 1800s, French peasants who were 35 were nearly dead because people died at about 40 because of malnutrition yeah. and things like that. So, and they already had about eight kids. So, they were you on know. the cliff anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's just not applicable to now. So when you look at modern studies that were done like in the last 10 years or so, the difference between your chances of conceiving naturally as a 39-year-old compared to a 30-year-old are only 4 to 6% different. No way. That's what I found in the studies that are in the book and they're all cited and they're all legit. But why is this stuff regurgitated so much that, you know, post-35 terror? I, I think it's the people that are regurgitating these stats to us that they may have seen in the Daily Mail that are about the French peasants. They are tend to be our parents, which are baby boomers who do want us to have kids early because that's what they did. Mm. The thing is, people want you to make the same decisions that they did because that consolidates Makes them feel safe. and validates their decisions because mm. they don't like being confronted with a different reality mm. because then they start questioning, maybe I shouldn't have had kids in my 20s. Maybe I should have waited. That. They don't want to start looking exactly. in that locker. That's a Pandora's <laughs> box full of sailors in every port and travelling. They could have, would have, should have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it makes people uncomfortable. So they want you to do what they did. That's quite simply what it is. So, but I did, I had a bit of a relapse almost with my love addiction. Oh, yeah. Um, a couple of years ago because my ovaries woke up at 38 before that I was what like do you no mean? I don't want kids and oh, then well, as and they, they started popping up. yeah and we're like hey have a baby and I was like what, what, what you tell me that on? now what brought that on I don't know I think it was probably biological them just going hey we're here <laughs> yeah. but also I think it was to do with financial security like I'm just totally finally very financially that. secure that is actually a, a huge thing because I think Men, I think, think about it more when they're, like, deciding or, or not whether to propose to someone that, in their minds, they need to be financially at a certain place. But I think for women, mm. um, wanting to have children, we don't realise it, but it has so much to do with whether we feel safe, secure financially and, like, we've created a nest and, like, a future for ourselves to actually be able to invite and be able to protect another human yeah. into it. Oh, God, yeah. And, you know, if I'd got pregnant in my early 30s when I was supposed to, I probably would have gone to jail for leaving the baby in a, <laughs> in a car outside a nightclub <laughs> while I was there with my leather and my eyeliner and my vodka. So 
I'm really glad I didn't do that now. Um, yeah. So you suddenly, your ovaries started knocking and being yeah. like, are you going to use us? Yeah, come on, do it. Um, and I suddenly started making not very good relationship decisions again. Mm. And I think it was totally driven by that, by that sensation of the window closing and me needing to do that. And so what I've done, I've just turned 40. So I've literally purposely silenced all of that. The and ovaries. Yeah. And like, I've been like, shut up. Yeah, yeah, just stop, stop making me make bad <laughs> dating decisions because I've come past all that. Um, and but it how, feels so good. Why were they bad dating decisions? Because I think they were driven towards me having a baby rather yeah. than me being in a happy relationship. Like a, and a, then yeah. maybe, a means to an end. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like now I'll, I'll make level-headed decisions again. So that's good. How do you sort of, once you've done all the work that you've done, start making those better decisions? Like how to acknowledge the red flags or, or not go for something because of the wrong uh, motivation? Well, I would be very clear on whether you're actually ready to date because I've taken lots and lots of time off dating over the past seven years. I have, I've been single for three years of the past seven years um, just on purpose because I've been like, I need a break. I, I just want to do like my Like sporadically? Own yeah. yeah. So I've taken like a year off and six months off and three months off and right now I'm going to try and be single until next year because I've got a book to write and I'm not very good at writing when I'm in a relationship <laughs> because as we talked about it takes up a lot of energy yeah. so ask yourself if you really are ready to date or if you're being sort of tyrannized by that feeling that time is running out and look at your life as a whole like I honestly thought that 40 was kind of like oh well then just life's over <laughs> And now I'm 40 and I'm happier than I've ever been. And I'm doing things like learning to paddleboard and writing a screenplay. And, you know, and I just couldn't be happier. So you've got so much time. When you look at the span of your life, you're not even halfway through if you're 30. You're way off halfway through. So you just need to totally reprogram that mentality to begin with, really. Yeah, and do not listen to older people who are trying to make you make the same decisions that they, they did. did in order to validate their choices because you do not want to do something like get married and have a baby. With the wrong you, person. If you really don't want to because that is a hell of a responsibility and a thing to get out of. I've got a lot of friends at the moment who are single and ones that I, I can tell they're sort of feeling like the, the clock is ticking. And I sort of energetically feel like the more you look, the mm -hmm. harder it is to find. Yeah, that's so true. And whenever you're on dating apps, and I have become addicted to dating apps in the past, for sure. Have you? Yeah. Like there's, I, I turn the notifications off and then I look at it 15 times a day. <laughs> You like, might as well just have them on then. I may as well have them on. Yeah, there's no point. It's actually more time consuming to just <laughs> open it and check it every time. Um, yeah, and so like I just can't be bothered with it anymore because it's it just feels like such a lot of admin. And now I feel like I don't think I'm going to do that again. I think I'm just going to let things unfold and see who I meet naturally and what happens. Yeah, I'm a big believer as well that that intercepts with fate. Yes, because if you didn't meet naturally, then maybe you weren't meant to meet. Mm. And it's something about it. The energy of it just feels like not quite right. Yeah. But I don't know, because so many listening people will be like, I met my boyfriend on like Tinder or whatever, and that's amazing. But it just doesn't feel like that's for me. No, and I don't actually know that many people who've had 
successful well not that short-term relationships aren't successful but they haven't gone long term with appy app people appy an appy person oh my god there's no appy ever after gaggy and the sponsor of this podcast is <laughs> Happy Ever After. That's so good. Someone's going to oh steal God, that. We should do an app. We should do an app. What called app? Yeah. We just Happy said neither of us believe in dating apps. But now we've got the, the catch line of the century. Yeah. We'll, we'll change our minds. We'll erase that bit from the podcast and then we'll pitch it. It's going to make us millionaires. And we can buy all the houses for the sailors. Uh, I love that. Um, and one more thing I wanted to talk to you about. It's, it's taking it a bit down suddenly, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about infidelity on the other side, mm. um, about your experiences with it, because you wrote about it and it really affected me, it really touched me, about a boyfriend cheating and you said how the the worst part was knowing that your pyjamas were under the pillow. Yeah. And it literally broke my heart. Like, I honestly nearly cried when I read that part <laughs> because it's, I had, like, not a dissimilar thing, but it's, it's something about those sentimental things, you know, yeah. like, or the lack of thought yeah. of something that connects you to the environment that they're cheating in. Yeah. I think, yeah, there was something so sad about my sweet little pyjama set sitting there under mm. the pillow waiting for me while my boyfriend of a year was sleeping with some girl that he'd met in a nightclub a few weeks before. Mm. And it just broke my heart. And it, it was it was so sudden as well, that cheat. It, I didn't see it, it coming. coming. Although I should have done because... But again, I ignored the red flags because I was like... He really likes me, so therefore I'll just go along with this. And when would we started, you, would you say that your body was telling you though, on some level? Yeah, I think it probably was, and I didn't, and my intuition was as well. Mm -hmm. And you can tell when you're ignoring red flags when you don't tell your friends about something they've told you. Mm. So he told me that he cheated on everyone, every long-term relationship he'd had, oh and he sort of justified it. That is a, that is a red flag. It's a huge half. red flag. It's like <laughs> it's like a red cruise liner. <laughs> Not even a flag. Run! <laughs> 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 yeah. like, no, no, I'm not going to tell anyone about that because I know they'll be like, "Get the hell out of there! What are you doing?" But you then know. again, of course, we always go into that like, "Well, that, that perhaps this time will be, be different." different. I'll I mean, change you know, him. Who knows? Because sometimes that is possible. Yeah. But I think a really lovely way that you spoke about it, though, was how you know, there was that 5% of the demise of the relationship and that sadness, but how 95% of it was still good. And I thought that was really lovely because I think we're very quick to villainize the person if they do something wrong and then tarnish the entire relationship mm. and everything it may have taught us and everything beautiful that was in it just because of a bitter ending. Yeah. And that is an incredibly heavy burden to carry around through life because you just sort of ruminate on it. I yeah, think. and you you only focus on the sour ending when there was so much else about it that was sweet. And I've really tried to reframe how I think about um, relationships that end because I truly don't believe that means they're a failure because every relationship has taught you something it's and you've had wonderful experiences in it, even if it doesn't last forever and end in you know, marriage. You can have such a lovely thing with somebody. And we don't think of friendships that way we're not like 
oh, because I don't want to live with that friend and swap eternity rings with them, that's a failure of a friendship. Mm. We just don't think of that. We see them as, you know, some come and go and some intensify and stay forever and and, and some some don't. We use it as a bit of a drug, I think, on Mm. like marinating on the bad stuff. Yeah, it's almost like the bitterness propels us away from the relationship. Yeah. And I think in some ways that is useful. Like um, whenever I've found myself in a real maudlin state where I just miss somebody constantly, sometimes I'll write a list of things I don't miss about them. Mm. And that does help propel me away from them. But then I consciously pull myself back and say okay I'm not gonna demonize them and villainize them and and paint them as this terrible person because they weren't because there was a lot of reasons why I went out with them in the first place they were a great person as well as a cheater but yeah that's how I see my past relationships now mix of good and bad I have danced between like being the perpetrator and the victim Mm. uh, in the aftermath of a relationship and and that goes on for months and it's kind of like there's no there's no peace there yeah there's there's really not when we are snatched away from something or something is snatched away from us and we're in pain, we do often feel that the remedy of the situation is the poison mm. and we want to communicate with that person and, and we think, well, maybe we'll sort of like ease each other through this process because that's been your person you go to for everything. And you give it the analogy of like, it's like drinking on a hangover. Like, yeah, it's just going to carry on. It's not working. It and just prolongs it. It just prolongs it. So do you think that that is just like an absolute no-no? Yeah, I would say in the first year at least of a major breakup, you, I, I wouldn't have any contacts with the next whatsoever. Would do you think you can say, be friends with the next? Yeah, I do. And I'm friends with some exes, but we were either not even a real thing in the first place. You know, we didn't even really get off the starting blocks. Or it was a long time ago, like we broke up six years ago. And I we're different people. Yeah, we're different people. But in general, I will I'll say to them, look, it's no it's nothing against you, but I'm gonna block you on social media because I don't think it's healthy for us to be seeing each other's stuff. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, it's really unhealthy for you to be able to see who your ex goes out with next. Yes. That is so unhealthy and to see what they're doing and what they're up to. And obviously on social media, people do not project what's really going on. He's mm. not going to put something up there about him crying all day because he misses you. Mm. He's going to put something up of being Projecting at a party the opposite. with yeah. like it, It's just, it's all showreel. It's not behind the scenes. So don't bother looking at it. At yeah. I think it is a form of self-harm as well. Oh God, it really is. It's like picking at a wound and not really letting it heal. And if they're there, no matter how much you tell yourself that you won't look, you look, mm. you just do, you have weak moments. So discipline has clearly been a huge theme for you. Oh, I'm so not disciplined. <laughs> that sounds like you've had to become very disciplined. That's that's a funny one, because I don't think of myself as disciplined. The way I think of it is more that I know now what's good for me, and what's good for me is often the opposite to what I think what I want. you want. Yeah. But so, is that not discipline? No, because I see it as self-care. So discipline to me is like iron will and, you know, it's a bit Maggie Thatcher, I don't know. It's very um, stern. See, I think of discipline as like a form of self-care. Oh, okay. Well, mm. it's just um, associations with mm. the word. Mm. Yeah. And sort of, yeah, for me to take responsibility over things, like that requires an element of discipline. Mm, I like that. So what would be your kind of tips to round up of like anyone that's navigating 
the seas of change during their late 20s, early 30s, and especially around relationships and sobriety? Mm. Well, I would say, first of all, are you wanting to get married without knowing somebody that you want to marry? Because that is truly putting the carriage before the horse. (laughs) And dare to build this alternative single future where, you know, what will happen if you don't meet somebody and or you just have love affairs and what kind of beautiful happy life could you build and have that in your head because that is an escape shoot from any toxic relationship that you may find yourself in and in terms of dating as a sober I would say it's so daunting to begin with and you might have found this but you'll find that once you get over the initial kind of holding hands and the kissing thing everything just happens naturally It's actually so much better. It's so much better. And it's almost like your body remembers what to do and it just happens. Of course. And then it's way better and, you know, you can remember all of it, which is a plus. And now I can't even imagine it any other way. Mm. Because I started thinking when I said, oh, I don't drink, then it all all felt like it fell in my lap of I'm making him feel uncomfortable or I should drink just for the situation because, like... It's the right thing to do. Mm. And now when I say that I don't, I actually love them thinking about them being like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) Being like, am I supposed to drink? Is she going to be uncomfortable? Like, because I'm so secure in it now. Yeah, that's great. But it's just like, it's who I am. Mm. And also I think I really, really expected that loads of guys were going to ghost me. I I tend to tell people before I meet them because I just don't want to have that Mm. awkward like moment where they're like oh really in fact I think it's been a bone like a positive thing for have you found on a lot a lot of situations that actually they're a bit like maybe there's something in this like as in to to not drinking so much or to changing their behavior a bit and I think it um helps people be vulnerable because if you're vulnerable, then people are vulnerable back. Definitely. You have and, to lead by example. Yeah, and then you create a much more real connection and you know whether you like each other genuinely rather mm. than it have being sponsored by Prosecco. <laughs> <laughs> I think loads of my relationships have been sponsored by Prosecco. Mine too. Champagne, probably. I prefer yeah. champagne. <laughs> oh, God. My, mine was more like Sauvignon Blanc. I couldn't afford Prosecco or champagne, really. I love it. Well, on that note, this has been amazing. And thank you so much. I think you're just an absolute star. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. Great. I've enjoyed it as well. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Bye. You know, relationships are incredibly complex and I feel like they get more complicated because we all come in with more armor and baggage each time around and you know it's our relationship to ourselves just as much as to others it involves constant inquiry self-inquiry and you know if the same things keep coming up I urge you to be inquisitive rather than judgmental with yourself and with others And to reflect on what I said at the top of this episode, no one is immune to heartbreak. And instead, I'd like to offer slightly different advice that when it comes to matters of the heart, you know, as Brene Brown says, there is courage and there is comfort and you can't choose both. There is is a risk in loving and 
being in relationship. But we can't reap the rewards unless we take that risk. And the more willing you are to open your heart, the greater the possibility of pain and heartbreak. There is no bypassing that. It's the unfortunate paradoxical truth that all things run even. But, you know, at the same time, that's what makes things interesting and exciting. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and that perhaps it gave you, you know, the freedom to look at things a little differently. It's not one way. We're not all going on the same path at the same rate. Like I said, this way of thinking that you have to have it all done by 30 is just so not true. And Catherine's a great example of someone that's just embracing self-partnership and really owning it and is super happy. And I think that's a really inspiring thing. And we need to see more of that and not judge women for not being, you know, like I said, chosen. So if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Kaggy's World and you can find Catherine at The Unexpected Joy Of. And if you would like a reading with our astrological guide for the season, you can find Nora at Stars Incline. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can listen to the full uncut version on my Saturn Returns with Kagi Patreon page. Patreon is a subscription service for our dedicated Saturn Returns community. So check it out in the show notes if you want to hear more from me and Catherine. I also highly suggest reading her books. They are a fantastic read and really helped me on my journey to sobriety and also in being single. This podcast is growing through word of mouth, so please continue to share it with your friends or anyone that you think might find it useful. It would also mean a lot if you are enjoying it to leave us a review on Apple because this helps us get discovered by more like-minded people. Saturn Returns is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Deborah Dudgeon and the executive producer is Kate Taylor. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. And remember, you are not alone. Goodbye.